Action! Hello and welcome to episode 369 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking. From indie film, to studio films, to TV, to documentary and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and a producer and you can catch some of my films Three Day Millionaire, The Dare, The Stranger in Our Bed on Sky Movies or on Netflix right now. Link to those is probably in the show notes but if not, just search some. Today on the show, we have first time feature film director Stuart Gatt. He has made the feature film Catching Dust and this is quite a remarkable film. It's not only um, done incredibly well at the Tribeca Film Festival but at Raindance very recently. Stuart had made quite a few short films but one in particular called The Dead Sea which starred BAFTA nominated Chopin Derisu uh, which focused on the plight of Libyan refugees and the short film My Beautiful White Skin which uh, tackled skin lightening amongst British Asians. Uh, Stuart is a uh, mixed Asian heritage himself and Stuart's stories often lean into that real world social issues and the realities of marginalised communities with Catching Dust. This is a wonderful feature debut set in Texas, glorious backdrops, incredible performances from Erin Moriarty, Jai Courtney, Dina Shahabi and Ryan Kaur, uh, which was written and directed by Stuart Gatt, produced by Mark David, John Katz, Edward R. Pressman and Stuart Gatt as well. Like I say, uh, Catching Dust had its world premiere at Tribeca Film Festival earlier this year and it will be released in 2024. But we wanted to get Stuart on to chat about his process so far and what he has learnt along the way from going from short films to making a festival feature film. Myself and Stuart Gatt talked about uh, why making a short film as a calling card is vital, why he wants to make movies in and set in the USA. We dived into his screenwriting process, why he uses flowcharts and why it's important to get it written. Um, he also has a favourite screenwriting book which he discusses in the podcast as well. He, he talks about pitching to investors uh, why he felt he was in a vacuum with no help from anyone before uh, the team got involved in Catching Dust. Why it's very important as a director that you should know your material. What it's like talking to cast, crafting those connections. And he gives you some amazing directing tips and tricks. And why it's important to know the core of the seat. And what he did for his directing process. Uh, adapting to actors, because each one is different and being challenged by your DP in a good way. Uh, Catching Dust is incredible. If you can catch it, um, sorry, if you can catch it uh, at the festivals, then do. I will be updating you on the socials where that will be playing next, but for now, link to that will be in the show notes. And as soon as this film is released, I urge you to go see it. And it's excellent work. This should be huge inspiration for anyone out there who wants to go out there and make their first film, maybe has made quite a few shorts uh, and is taking the step up. Uh, this episode will inspire you. Shout outs we're going to Jeanette Godoy, Rob Ailing, who's crowdfunder. Uh, for his film Punchback on Greenlit is coming to an end very soon. Link to that is in the show notes. Go support if you can. Uh, Jay Logan Austin, who has recently um, just bought some of our merch for Christmas presents. We have t-shirts and mugs and on-set water bottles and hoodies. So if you need a Christmas present, not just for yourself, but for that filmmaker, for someone who loves filmmaking in your life, uh, the link to that is in the show notes. I've made them as cheap as I can. I promise you we're making like pennies from it. But they're cool and they're really nice. Designed them myself. So if you like the designs, then please tell me. Um, and if you don't, shut up. Buy one anyway. Oh, and this coming Monday, the 4th of December, just under a week away, there's a London Independent Film Festival. They're, they're having a Christmas party and they invited the Filmmakers Podcast uh, to be part of it as well. So it's a networking Christmas party. This is on the 4th of December, next Monday. Um, 2023 in the evening um, and it's free at Genesis Cinema so if you're free and in London and you want to come and join us for a pre-Christmas drink meet fellow creatives 
that you can collaborate with and you can start the new year with a bang. Join us uh, this Monday, the 4th of December. The link to that is in the show notes. It's free. Come along. Um, it'll be a lovely chat from 7 till 10 p.m. Um, do purchase a ticket, though, even though it's free. You do need to purchase one, I believe, to get in. Next week on the podcast, we probably have femme directors Sam Freeman and Ung Chan Ping, otherwise known as Ping, talking about their feature film, Femme, which is out in cinemas next week. Or it could be Sam Boyd, the director of the Christmas uh, movie called Genie, starring Melissa McCarthy, which is also out next week as well. So it could be either of those. But before you put your party hats on, before you get too excited that Christmas is coming up, sit back, relax and enjoy my chat with rather wonderful man, very insightful, very clever and a brilliant filmmaker. Talking about his debut movie, Catching Dust, it is Stuart Gatt. Enjoy. Hey Stuart, how are you mate? Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all, mate. Uh, welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Honestly, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, myself and Don were chatting about this film, and we really enjoyed it. It was really well made. thought it was beautifully shot, stunning performances, um, you know, very well directed. And we were like, hang on. Let's just let's just remind ourselves of Stuart, because sometimes we get, we get a lot of screeners, we get a lot of stuff. And I looked and I went hang on, this is his debut movie. We were like, this is pretty impressive. So, yeah, it must feel pretty good right now, right, for yourself. Um, must be getting a load of lovely reviews and responses to it. Yeah, the, the, the feedback and the response has been really amazing. I think I worked really hard to make sure that the film, of course, I've got so much development to, to, to have as a filmmaker, but I think I worked as hard as I could to try and make sure the film didn't fall foul of the the, the the standard issues that a first time filmmaker suffers with. Mm. I think that was a big part of it actually is because I do feel like even me, I'm like, I'm the, I'm the, I'm a biggest critic, but I do realize that when I look at it, I'm like, oh, it does feel a little bit more accomplished than a first feature. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's scaled up because of the level of cast I have. And maybe it's because of the setting. It feels such a big, like cinematic landscape that it makes you feel like the films operating above the, the world it normally should be for a first-time filmmaker. But um, I definitely worked really hard at trying to perfect my craft and really understand and look at and go, okay, what are the mistakes that I'm going to make here and try and iron them out as much as possible? And I think that a, a big credit goes to the team that I had with with the, the crew and also the cast who were very experienced. To, and, and also I, I tried to create an environment where I could be challenged and, and everyone's ideas could be considered better than mine. So I think that's testament to what we've got in the final product is about the people that we had as a team and stuff yeah i mean how did you get the team then because like i say it's it's what, what i think was really interesting for our listeners is the fact and for me is the fact that you went from short film a couple of you made three as far as i know you've probably made more whatever in in your time but in terms of what i've seen and then to make this with the cast you have and with the scope that is there and again the budget might be really low and we can perhaps talk about that. But in terms of the look and the feel, this feels epic. Feels big, big scale. So how did you get the team involved? How let's 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 dive in. Yeah. <laughs> how did it happen? So <laughs> I so okay, so when we say team and we start with the producers and then work our way down, right? Is that the first Yeah, let's let's do that. Because you it's usually that's money, isn't it? So when you bring a producers on board, that's when things start to move forward to, you know, to whether it goes to streamers or money people, even though we can do that ourselves, I feel as director slash producer slash writers ourselves. Sometimes when you bring someone with weight on board, it just helps things move. Had you been trying to make a film for quite a while before Catching Dust? Yeah, so I mean, I, I made three short films mm-hmm. and um, I'd I, like really, I made one back all the way, my first short film all the way back in 2008. But the time that I was really dedicated to, to like, you know, this is my main thing um, was really from 2014 onwards. You know, it's almost 10 years of, of grinding. Mm-hmm. Um, the big, big, big thing for me, the biggest thing I, c- I can attribute my ability to go from short to feature and get the kind of, and people that we had was really creating a piece of work that made the industry go okay this guy is ready to make a feature and that was my last short film and I think that 
it's something I've been asked before and I've thought about it a lot. And actually, I did think about it before I came on the podcast on, you know, doing this with you, because I know that these are the kind of questions that you guys want to know. And I think it's really interesting for people in situations like mine or people who are like on short films to know what that big jump is. And there's a lot of focus put on certain tactics and networking and this and this trick and that trick. But I really feel for me, the key is you have to deliver something at a short film level that really stands out. And I did, that's why I didn't make, I haven't actually made, I haven't, like I said, I've only made three and two really at a time when I was really focused on it. And like, my thing was always, I want to make short rather than, this isn't a critique of this style. It was just the way that I decided to do it. Rather than make like 15 shorts that were two grand each. I was like, let me just grind, work a sec, like work a job, save up as much as I can and try and make the highest quality short film that I could that showed people that, you know, if you just extended this by another, you know, 90 minutes. Yep that I was ready to, to to take that leap. And I did that with a f- short film called The Dead Sea, which starred Shope Dirasu, who was yeah. in for BAFTA recently. He's an incredible, incredible actor. He's an incredible, incredible actor. I've played football with him a couple of times. Oh, really, he's, yeah. Uh, he's a decent footballer and, and a big, strong lad as he well. He is, very athletic, <laughs> very strong. Yeah. Very, yeah. very athletic, Shope. He used to play American football yeah. in university, I think. Yeah, so um, yeah. incredible person, even better actor. Like, But that short film really... After I made that, I felt like I was having a lot of interest coming at me rather than me feeling like I had to reach out to people. And it was as a result of that short film that I met my producer who came on. So he'd seen a, he'd seen the film halfway through. He was like, look, I'd love to come on and have an exec producer credit. Obviously, it was about the Libyan refugee crisis at that time, which it still is, unfortunately, very topical. And he wanted to be involved and have his name on it and, and you know, input creatively. And, and he came on. His name was Mark David. And... Yeah. After we made that short film, we like, okay, look, we, we had a, I remember we had a coffee afterwards and just to sort of, you know, talk about the experience. And he said, look, let's, we said together, really, you know, let's try and make a feature together. And that was something we committed to do. And he's kind of dual British American nationality, but based out of New York predominantly. And it was through his contacts that we were able to bring on like Pressman films. And so he he's, was working with John Katz, who's had been at Pressman films for a very long time. Yes. And then John Katz came on board to produce it. And then, you know, John was still working with their pressman. Their pressman came on. And then really at that point, the film was going, was, was being serviced really through the American system. And that was kind of surreal. You know, it's like a kid from London. Yeah. And suddenly you're in this, you know, you've got all the agencies. You know, the way it works out there is you, you, your, your script gets sent to one of the big three, like WME, CAA or, or UTA. And, um, suddenly my phone was like blowing up, like a million 310 numbers calling me. And it's like, hey, Stuart, it's this agent from this agency. I want to talk to you about my clients. And I'm like, how the fuck did you get my number? Like, wow. It's so surreal. Wow. I, they just, everyone had my number suddenly and everyone was, was, was pitching me people. And so we, so the process was kind of a mix between agents pitching a lot of their clients mm-hmm. and saying, look, I really want you to meet this person. I really want you to meet that person. And then it was our casting director, Kerry Barden, who's in, who's, um, uh, based out there and he cast stuff like Winter's Bone and a lot of, Big indie films. The Help, Spotlight. He's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done so much. Winters, same Winters Bone is just a film that stands out to me because I loved it so much as an indie, but like, he's done, he's done so much. And he, um, he had, and, and obviously via him, he had lots of people doing auditions and he, he, um, had people, for, he was having conversations with the agencies as well. And we mm-hmm. kind of created a list and we were lucky enough to, to, to get the people that were kind of right at the top of our list. Yeah. It kind of spiraled from there because I honestly did not think, I thought that I would be going the route of, which was exciting to me as well of going the route of finding kind of unknowns and, and trying to cast people that I knew had ability and give them mm. an opportunity to showcase that. But we had people being pitched to us who were very established people I thought were kind of un, unreachable for a film of this size mm. and a debut filmmaker, because I keep hearing in, in, in LA, it's like you having a feature under your belt means everything. You can make 20 incredible short films, but you can make one terrible feature. And you've got more mm-hmm. weight, unfortunately, in the way it works in, yep. in, yep. in the States. So yep. I know I was going into this thing with a disadvantage with the American system, but it kind of worked out. Yeah, no, I, mate, I really like that. I think that's so interesting. There's so many questions I have on this. Um, first of all, let's jump back a tiny bit onto the script writing process of this. Obviously, you'd written a fantastic script. You'd set it in Texas, right, in the first place. Was that always your aim to say, look, I'm a British filmmaker, but I want to do something in America. I don't want 
to be smaller scale in the UK. I don't know, what was your thought process behind that? Because I know with my first feature, I wanted to also set it in America. Um, I, I was wary of making another horror in the UK. That was just my feeling on it. And I wanted to go bigger in scale. I felt that way. Was it similar with you? Is that why you chose to do that? It was. I've got to be honest, I've never seen myself working in the British system. What's the reason? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think there's really a sort of a subconscious an unconscious bias towards it and then there's also a conscious part of it i think that i think the that the the unconscious side of it is probably driven by the fact i don't think we really have a movement here Mm -hmm. outside of people like ken loach and in meadows yeah in a way yeah yeah shane meadows and i mean really I, i really think of ken loach stands out above and beyond anyone else really and it's like i don't know what our movement is here I didn't grow up watching British films and going, wow, I mean, this is the kind of cinema I'm trying to make because the filmmakers I really looked up to, I mean, we, the Britain has some of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Greatest, yeah. But they all work in the States. Yeah. And I suppose when I looked at those people, I think of like legends like Ridley Scott. I mean, you know, and then you think about modern people who I think are phenomenal who are British, like Steve McQueen and Lynn Ramsey and stuff. They're, they're, they make, they might, they might make one film here, but very soon they're out there making films. And I think that. That was probably the unconscious part of it. I'd seen that and just realized, oh, well, I mean, the type of films I want to make, I definitely want to make a certain type of film and work at a certain budget level. And I feel like as a writer, I've got really different and unique ideas that do require the ability to have budget flexibility to to execute them. That I didn't see that happening in the UK. And I think just unconsciously, my mind gravitated to the American landscape as a result. Um, I think that was... Actually, you know what? That probably qualifies as more the conscious side when I can articulate it like that. I think the sub, the uh, the unconscious part was growing up watching American cinema. I think my my dad was one of those guys that didn't really have a concept of parental responsibility and would let me watch what, what he was. What he, he wouldn't have an issue with me sitting in the room while taxi drivers going off or you know, like <laughs> yeah. the, sh- the shining <laughs> aliens on. on. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I grew up watching a lot of like Scorsese and Kubrick and Coppola and all that kind of thing. And I think as a result my because I never went to film school you know so like I feel Mm. like my my vernacular my cinematic vernacular has been informed by that American cinema and naturally my mind gravitated to that that world and I think I was was getting a lot of imagery I'm I'm one of these people that gets a lot of ideas that pop into my head and you kind of latch on to them and I was getting Mm -hmm. this image of the American West and this this one trailer in the middle of the desert and that, that for some reason that image fascinated me and then you go on this journey of trying to fill in the gaps right who might live there and why are they there and you know what could happen that turns their life upside down so um that's where that came from and i think that could be the more unconscious part actually the conscious part is probably more like i was saying before i sort of got that wrong it was more the conscious part is more like i struggle to see what our movement is and i think we actually do we need in the uk we really do need to do a better job of this and i think that it needs to come from probably more state funding but to mm-hmm. create an ecosystem here of filmmakers where and, and allow them to stay here because you think of like Colombia has a movement and you know South yep. Korea has a movement yeah. um, France you think about France how many of their best filmmakers they want to work in the French system they're given or they're yeah. given autonomy they're given creative control they're given the budgets that they need to make mm-hmm. and they work within a style of cinema they're proud to be part of and feel part of that I don't know that we get the same thing here and I think that we need I think we've got so much talent here that it needs to be it needs to, to be given a chance to flourish, you know, and, mm. and we don't really do it. It's too easy for us to just make the leap and, and go over to the States. And unfortunately, mm. like I've, I've done that without even having to make a f- feature here. I think that's yep. how strong the pull was for me as I didn't even f- feel a desire to make a film here. It huh. felt like I had to do it over there first. See, that's really interesting. And, and I love that you brought this up because I think it's so true. You know, I, I bang on about this industry all the time and talk about the UKs and how we can, as a, uh, as an industry, do something and try and change the system. And I know that great producers out there are trying to do that right now. I know Andy Patterson, for one, um, he's producer of The Girl, Girl with the Pearl Earring, etc. And he is going out there and trying to make the government listen and change the system changing the uk tax break at the moment and hopefully fingers crossed that happens and it goes up a fair chunk it might not happen but i remember i think it was in was it the 2000s uh this there was a big movement a big change might have been just before that where the government said yes we are going to do something i think it happened after the war as well uh, the second world war in about 48 1948 and the government went yes we're going to do something about this let's have an industry in the uk and both those times they failed 
And they failed because I think they didn't stick at it. I think the films they chose, the things that were happening, didn't move the needle. And forgive me if my history is not as correct as it should be here, but it, I know that two attempts happened and both times they failed. But yet we have the biggest, uh, well, the most renowned skilled workers. You know, America loves to work with the UK crew, uh, and I know other countries do as well. Actors as well. I mean, dominate. Yeah, actors too. Like we have the best crews and actors, and y- you're right. France, Sweden, Germany, Finland, all uh, Austria, all these countries have systems for their filmmakers where it's a conveyor belt. You put a project in, it goes through development, and then they put the money forward, and then you get to shoot it. And it happens over this five-year cycle. Mm. That does not happen in the UK, and we end up scrappling about and scrapping for the scraps at the bottom of the barrel to go out there and try and make an indie film ourselves. Mm. And like you say, if someone does do well, they've gone to America. Yeah, I don't know. I think you're absolutely right, mate. I think there needs to be a change. And it's interesting you want to shoot in America straight away and knew that. I find that fascinating that you knew. <laughs> I think I'm, I really am a product of that the failure of the British system in that sense. Mm. Um, and it's a shame because I'm London, I'm UK born and raised. And I don't feel that desire, that burning desire to, to want to work in the system. I mean, I'd like, I mean, I'd love to, to, to explore it. I'm not cut off to the idea. Mm-hmm. I just didn't see the examples of what I was trying to emulate, you know, that were around me. I just struggled to see that. I only saw mm-hmm. that from my British counterparts who were working out in the Hollywood system. So, and you just sent your script on spec. Is that how it worked? You, it, John Katz obviously had got involved. And yeah. Was he sending it for you or were you sending it directly to the agencies? So um, so it was a mixture of him and, and Kerry Bard and our casting director. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I'd, um, yeah, so I'd, I'd written it on spec. So like when Mark and I, um, Mark David and I had finished The Dead Sea, we talked about mm-hmm. developing a feature length version of The Dead Sea and that didn't get much traction because people were kind of, in inverted commas, over the refugee crisis at that time, which is kind of distasteful, but it's just a way of the nature of the, uh, the industry we're in. And I said, well, look, I've got this other idea. I'd written an early version of this script back in the day. Just, I always just, I wanted to just write it down because I had these imagery and I was like, I've got this idea I know I need to write. And I talked to him about it and he loved it, wrote it. We developed it together. And, um, and then, yeah, then it was given to John Katz and then John Katz got that sort of American machine moving, basically. I love it. Oh, and just to finish up on that sort of subject as well, uh, listen, the indie filmmakers out there in the UK, and I know we have so many US listeners, and I know that your system is broken too, but at least it, you, things can get made over there. But for the UK uh, indie producers out there, let's, let's try and band together. Let's try and do something right now. Um, and if that's you pushing it forward to get other producers to do something, then uh, please do it. Let's see if we can do something. Um, in terms of your screenwriting then on this, did you just, like you say, you had this image of a caravan in the desert and I'm, I'm like you. I'm the same. I'm like, when I see something, I stick with it and I go, that's the image. And I can't see that shooting in the UK. I can see that shooting, you know, all right, we could double it for Spain if we had to or whatever, but it's set in America. How did you then go about writing it? Because it's complex. It's fascinating. It's this whole wonderful world you've created. What did you do then to put pen to paper? Did you do a treatment first, scriptment? How do you like to work? It's a very, it's a very good question. You know, I, I developed, I realized that when I sit down to write, I, there was a moment for me when I was like, because I spent a lot of time writing and stuff. There was a moment for me some years ago when I was sat, I sat down to write and I was like, hang on a minute, how do I start exactly? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I realized I didn't have a process. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a process. And I said, okay, I need to create a, like a flow chart that dictates what my process is. Because I realized that, you know, when you sit down, it can be the most daunting task when you sit down and go, right, okay, I need to write a script, especially, I mean, I haven't had to deal with that yet. But I always just think to myself, it must be so daunting for people who get commissions. And they're like, right, you've got three months to turn a script around. I mean, where the hell do you start? And yeah. So I, yeah. so I said, okay, I need to know. I remember once I was listening to, to Kobe Bryant when he got an injury, just come out from an Achilles. Uh, mm. No, he just come out from a shoulder injury and he was back for like a, a couple of months and then he ruptures Achilles. And he'd taken ages to get back from his shoulder. And the doctor told him, okay, you've ruptured your Achilles, you've got eight months out. And he said, when he heard that, he's like, okay, I'm done. I'm retiring. And then he 
caught it because he's like eight months. I've just spent four months doing this. And he said he caught himself. And he's like, no, it's not eight months. It's one week of rest. Then yeah. it's another week of just flexing your foot. And then it's another week of crutches. And then it's another week of one crutch. And then he, he, he said that he broke it, his re- rehab down into the tiniest blocks. And when you look at the tiny steps, it's not daunting. You just focus on each step that's in front of you. And I realized I needed to create a diagram or flowchart, whatever the right term is, that allowed me to go, right, this is my process when writing a script. So here's the first thing I have to do. I don't have to worry about the daunting task of handing in a script this thick and it's foot perfect and nuanced and everything works. Mm-hmm. All I need to focus on is these tiny steps. And that's what I do now. So I go through those steps and that before I write one single word on final draft, I've understood everything about the characters' motivations, the, 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 um, side characters, their motivations, the goals, the, the, the obstacles, everything, the characters' weakness and need, like everything is fleshed out in that process. Yeah. So that when I get to the end, um, that the, one of the final steps is like drawing out the, drawing almost like a timeline of the, the scenes. So mm-hmm. I can just see them play out almost like in a, like a timeline and go, okay, this happens, this happens, this happens and sense check it for, dr- for dramatic and, uh, dramatic, dramatic development, but also like, um, the tension and that kind of thing. And then once I, then I'll, once I'm happy with that, I'll go into the script and start writing those scenes that are there on that timeline. But before I get to that timeline, there's been a huge amount of work done. Cause I've realized like, I, even with, um, I, I just finished my, my new script and I sat down in front of that, that, that chart and I was like, oh man, have I got to do all this again? If I really got to do all of these steps, I know what I'm doing. And I've caught myself and I was like, the moment I do that, believe I know everything. Mm-hmm. I'm in trouble because it's a huge amount of work that I do before I start writing script. But I realized if I don't do that, if I don't do this work, I could start writing that script and there'd be key things about these characters or the narrative that I'm missing. So I just, I commit myself to realizing there's a, there's a significant amount of work that needs to be done. And then I do it step by step before I get to the script. I love that because people can jump in too soon. I did it when I first sort of was... I don't know whether starting on the middle of writing scripts. I feel like I've written so many mm. over my time, but I do remember some I've just jumped in feet first because I had an idea and I got to page 70 and I hadn't really even gotten to the, you know, end of act one yet. And I'm like, Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> and then I've never finished it. And I yeah. always loved that idea. I just never finished it because I hadn't prepped it properly, you know, and it's okay. Some people can do it. Some no, people are can. amazing at that yeah. and they just rattle it out and it's great. And some people can't. So I think it's your own, what works for you, right? And it sounds like you found a system. How did you know? You said you didn't, you know, you didn't go to film school. How did you know what worked for you and what didn't? Okay, so this, I think there's two parts to it. One, I do realise now that I I do understand what story should be and, and how a film should look and how a story functions. And I think it's the way that I learn. I'm not a great reader. I mean... I do read, but I much prefer to watch and learn. I can absorb things that way. I've almost got like a photographic memory for stuff that I watch. And I think that like being a really young child, growing up with my dad, who would just put on all this stuff. And then my mum, who would, the way, the way to pacify me and my brother was to just give us videotapes. So we would just be watching tape after tape after tape after tape. And I think that I just absorbed the language of story and understood what's missing in certain scenes. The other part of it is I worked really hard to try and understand story. I've read, read a lot of screenplay books. Um, I listened to as many interviews and talks by filmmakers and writers that I really revered. And I think they doing that work was what filled the, the gaps in my kind of instinctive knowledge to understand the, the theory of story and, and yeah. script writing. So I think that I got, it's a mixture of those two, basically. I didn't just assume I could do it all. I worked pretty hard to, underst- to give myself a film school that I never had. Mm. Any any of the books? Can you remember any of the titles of those books? The, the, a, a book that I think is really brilliant, that really spoke to me, is John Truby's Anatomy of a Story. I think mm-hmm. that one's a great one. Yeah. I think yeah. he he kind of lays out... I mean, he argues against uh, having like certain steps and then kind of presents some steps, but I think his... His idea is that the, 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 I think the basic thesis of his book is brilliant is that you've got to understand a character's weakness and need and then understand it's like a psychological development that will take someone from the person they are to the person they'll become. And if you look at all the great stories, it, there's different ways to, to, to allow that to manifest on screen. But ultimately, that's the journey that we're seeing of the story mm-hmm. that we usually love. 
Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, that hero's journey, the 12 steps of that, you know, the heart chart, which um, James Hart created. There's so many of these like structurally um, ways to write a film. But, and I love what you said, it comes from your heart. It comes from knowing that you've watched so many films over your life. You understand story structure because there's a beginning, middle and an end from when we were one years old and we could understand a story two years old and when our parents were telling us a bedtime story beginning middle end every time yeah and it doesn't have to have a beginning middle end or be in that order but at the end of the day we understand story we've read books our whole lives kids stories which always have a beginning middle and end and i think as long as you put that into your writing you choose when things should happen. You can feel it, right? Yeah. You, were, you were saying that before. You can feel when something needs to happen because otherwise you as the writer are going, I'm bored of them two just talking, these yeah. two talking. And actually, to, <laughs> you know? to, sort of, to extend on what you're saying, actually, it's, it's much bigger than that. You're right. I mean, really, everyone is an expert in story. Audiences are an expert in story. They might not be able to articulate why, they don't mm. like something or why something doesn't work. But think how many yeah. people go to watch film or will turn on the TV and be massively gripped by a great story. They're not, ex yeah. they're no more of an expert. They're, 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 I'm, I'm technically more of an expert then, but they respond intrinsically the same way I do. It's because we understand yes. it. I, I think there's like, there's a really good example of this when we, I was scouting in the Big Bend in Texas for the film and me, mm -hmm. the producer and, and Ali from the Texas Film Board, we were walking along the Rio Grande River. And you can kind of cross over into like the Mexico and uh, part of the bank and then come back over. And there was like a, there's like a kind of rope that you use to steady yourself as you're walking across because you're wading through the water. And we were walking and we saw this woman climbing down the bank and she's wearing a, a pristine white jumpsuit, linen, and the water is muddy and the bank right. is muddy. And instantly we all froze and were glued to this woman's journey. Mm. And it was because we understood the stakes. The stakes were a white dress. Yeah. The obstacle was this impossible muddy bank. She's trying to commandeer her way down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were fascinated by whether she was going to make it or not. Yeah. Deep down, we wanted to see her fail. Sure. Or we wanted to see her look like she's about to fail to catastrophe fail. and she pulls yeah. her, pulls her way out of it, you know, like finds a yeah. way to, yeah. to, 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 to escape. We, but we were glued instantly. We're walking, talking, talking like about the film, like really important mm -hmm. things about the location. And instantly we just were all glued to this, this woman crossing in a white jumpsuit. And I think it's a great example of how humans are wired to be connected to human experience. We want to see people maybe for, our, maybe for self preservation or, or for our need to, to, to be invested in in life to have optimism is to be able to see people overcome things that we think we're going to be faced with in future. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, so I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And did she? Did she get across to the other side? What happened? Did you all have to run in? Did you no, rescue no, her? No, I'm no. fascinated. I, 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 was not, I was not getting in my muddy water. I can tell you that now. No way. <laughs> um, she, she, she managed to kind of do it. She had to roll her like legs right up. There was a way for her to do it where she never had to get in the water and she sort of fell yes. doing that. But she didn't Brilliant. destroy her suit. She managed to just about do it basically. But we didn't leave until we saw, saw her complete it. But it was, it was amazing. Like it really was. That's an amazing story. Yeah. And we can all visualize that as well, which is fascinating. I love it. But on to catching dust then. And obviously I want to get to your, how it was directing it. But let's talk about actually getting it made. And I mean yeah. that in terms of your producers now and you and the team and getting cast on board and getting money for a film like this, because, you know, it, it's a slow burning drama, beautifully told. It really is a great film. Oh, thank you. Thanks so and much. the performances are absolutely dark and twisted and fantastic. And they've really tapped into something. And I believed everything. And I wanted to sort of know how you actually did get the money how it did move forward what 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 was the process next so you've written the script it's sending out to cast three casting agent through kerry barden and and things are moving forward tell us now what happened because during that time it's frightening as a filmmaker because you think oh we are gonna get excited and then it hurts when it doesn't because like you say 10 14 years of trying to make a film is is devastating so so i so for full disclosure the money raising was not my remit but obviously i'm privy to sure to a lot mm. of what happened. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, 
as much as I know, basically. I mean, I learned a lot about how films get financed. I mean, I've got to be honest, I didn't know how films got financed. I've only just used to raising them myself. I've never had government funding or anything like that. So a big part of our budget came from, so we shot in the Canary Islands. And that is like a 50% tax rebate. So Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that I know that that was a big chunk of our funding. God, it looks like Texas. I mean, that's fantastic. It really does. Yeah. I mean, like, I was skeptical when I was scouting the islands. I had this, like, list of places to scout. And I was like, how can this look like Texas? I just come from Texas. Mm. And I was shocked at how, how good it looked. And it gave us more than Texas in a way, because the thing that I realized is the more beautiful the landscape you see in the States, the harder it is to shoot there, the more protected it is. Whereas, yes. Where, yeah, of course. Whereas the Canary Islands just everywhere is crazy beautiful and, and it's all open for filming. So, um, almost all of it. So, um, so the Canary Islands tax rebate was a big chunk of it. So the, it, I, I just would hear a lot of these conversations. I realized there's a few ways this film would have got funded. The, the first thing, the first part was getting our cast attached. Right. Because okay. I think what, what generally happens is you get your cast attached and you have a sales agent and the sales agent will give you a, a projections based on that mm-hmm. cast. And then you can then take those projections and get like, I think it's called debt financing or something where you get like a, it's like almost like a loan against the film because they, they have faith in those projections. They give you the money yes. to, to make the film and then they take a premium on top of that. We didn't go that route. We could have also pre-sold the film and we had offers to do that from, you know, different distributors and streamers and stuff. Um, but the way it, that the, the route went that the, the producers raised the remainder of the, so we had the tax credit, the remain, the remainder of the budget via private equity. And that was through their networks. And I, I don't know much more than that about where that, who they spoke to and how they done it. But I think because of their experience as producers working in the American system, they probably just had access to people that, I mean, I definitely don't have access to people that can raise millions of dollars, but mm-hmm. I think, um, I think the cast that we had was a big factor in being able to get this film made because you're right. I think that the type of film that it is, if we had absolute no-name characters, we definitely wouldn't have got the budget we got. And it would have probably been a harder sell. We would have needed potentially more government money. I don't know. We didn't get any government money outside of the Spanish rebate. Um, but yeah, it was basically, ultimately it was private equity and, and the Canary Island tax rebate. Amazing. And that was you. Did you have to pitch? Did you go into rooms and talk about it? Or was it just your producers? Yeah, no, I did. I did do a few pitches, actually. It was like, it, mm. and the thing is, it wasn't really, it wasn't really pitches as such. It was more, they'd read the script and they really liked it and they wanted to talk to me about it. And they just had, you know, they had like, I mean, one of the questions I kept getting asked, which at first I was like, why are you asking me such a stupid question? They'd say, oh, why are you making this story about West Texas? Yeah. And I was like, well, no. I mean, it came in my head. I mean, I don't know. But, yeah. then, but, but I realized why, because, you know, they, <laughs> they see me as this, this kid from London. They're like, well, did you grow up in West Texas? Did you? And I realized that obviously a lot of filmmakers do make films about the world they've grown up in. So mm-hmm. I, I, after a while, when I realized what that question was really asking, I thought, oh, okay, I get it now. So that was one of the big questions that I probably wasn't that prepared for, but gave them the answer that they wanted in the end. But so it was more that kind of thing, asking questions about, about thing, about, you know, your ideas for the film, how you see it. Mm-hmm that kind of thing. It all went really well. I mean, it's, it's a quite interesting process because I've never had to do any of this before. I felt, honestly, I felt so isolated from this industry. I've made my films in a, in a vacuum. It feels like my short films, particularly I've never had any BFI money or film London money. Um, I just like work, put my head down and work, 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 save up as much as I could live like a pauper during that time, just so I could make the film and I end up producing them myself and making them myself. And it was never easy. So, suddenly been injected into the sort of the, the, the reality of the industry and all the nor- the norms that you haven't been exposed to was kind of fascinating um but f- i was able to, to to deal with it i didn't i never really got nervous or or felt underprepared i feel like i know my material well and that was always i think that's a, a key i think for filmmakers in that position i think there's two things to, to focus on in those moments is one you if you know you know your material right even if you're not the writer as a director you should know the material and understand you know why characters are doing what they're doing and why a story should you know is taking a turn at that point and that kind of thing um i think the other part of it was was i also i realized that what one of the most profound moments i, I had during like the learning processes during this film was i was like I'm, and I always consider myself an artist and a lot of filmmakers are scared to say that because there's a sort of sense of pretentiousness about calling yourself an artist. 
that we are mm. film is an art and we are all artists no matter how much humility you have in approaching your filmmaking and i realized actually this film is only i'm only doing myself in this film justice if my artistic voice is being expressed and i and i felt an, an empowerment in that in those moments that i'm someone who um i'm someone who's in a position where i'm uniquely placed to be able to give people my voice and express my voice as an artist mm. so um i think that that was a big confidence booster for me in those moments mm. did anyone question you though as a director not just obviously you can direct you've made shorts but th- like you say until you've made a feature people aren't taking you as serious was there some kickback was the moments where people were like well how are you going to do this are you going to be able to be able to cope in the dust uh, and the dirt and the grime in the trenches of it all there wasn't there actually wasn't and i think that a big mm-hmm. part of that was the dead sea my short film right they looked at that and even me looking at that like i made the short film i made before that i looked at it and i was like no this is this is not showing me right now this this isn't good enough and I, and that really motivated me to make the dead sea like straight away gotcha. um and i knew i felt confident i was like you, someone has to look at this and see um someone has to be able to look at this and go yeah Stuart's ready to make a film and that's what they saw you know so um it was that plus i think the elements are quite contained i don't think people saw this as a massive leap for me if i was making right. an action film with 50 locations they might start going can he handle this but i felt mm-hmm. like the elements were contained enough that i was able to um execute in a way that I, I needed to and when you brought the the cast on board as well let's just read some of the names out erin moriarty jai courtney uh, dina shihabi iran core you know owen fora as well um wonderful uh welsh actress um you know wh- how did you talk to them about it once you'd like you say they seemed to come on first before you got the money so what was your process when they said yeah we like this let me talk to the director we just connected on the material really i think they they were really they were really motivated by the script you can tell when someone's really motivated by the script and they were really motivated by the script and we had like long meaningful discussions about it we talked about our ideas and i think you know i think that we there was just a connection in that sense we both saw it in the same way we both had and this is like it, it's because it, like i say with, with with dina with ryan with jai with with erin we just from having within a few minutes of having a conversation with them you're like this is the person who's going to play it you could feel that there was a synergy they understood it there was a passion about the characters and i think that um i think for me it gave me a lot of confidence and i knew that i was speaking to someone who would be a really dedicated and and fruitful collaborator because that's what you really are looking for with an actor. You're not looking for someone who can just say, okay, do the lines and, and I'll call yeah, cut. You absolutely. need someone who's going to work with you to develop this thing and bring, take what you've written to another level. And they can only do that because they, they, they want to bring their own ideas and have a point of view about the character. And it's about feeling confidence in their understanding of it. And with those guys, I had absolute confidence and they, they just, they were as excited to play it as I was for them to, 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 to play it. And I think that's where the marriage really came from. And it really shows because they really did go above and beyond. It felt that way. Like, like I say, these are heart wrenching, dark delivering performances. It's, it's fascinating. And what a brilliant watch. So let's talk about directing this then. Right. What's your process? Like you, you made a really strong short. Now you come into a feature. Was it daunting in that sense? Did you plan it like you do your script? work so a, a couple of things i'd done i saw I, I i watched um i remember watching coppola when he was talking about directing the godfather and he before every he'd go through every scene in the the, the the film and he'd write in the script and he'd say um he'd say okay what's the core of the scene and what's the pitfalls of the scene mm. and i'd done that for every scene in the film so no matter how stressed i was no matter how much of an issue i had i'd be able to open up my, this Bible I had before and go, right, what's the core of this? What am I really, the essence of this scene that I'm trying to capture? And what are the pitfalls? This bit could be overacted. Mm-hmm. This beat doesn't land, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and that was really to protect myself in those moments where, you know, you're pulled in a bil- billion different directions when you're making a film. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to always have that at hand no matter how stressed I was, right? Um. So that was one thing that I'd done. The other thing was I kind of had this, 
moment of panic before I got onto the film because uh, like Empire had done a feature on Chopin and they asked him about his um his uh like formative projects and they're talking about all these features and he went well actually no it's this film called the dead sea and the collaboration i had with Stuart Gatton. i was like jeez i was like wow i was like what is he talking about i couldn't understand he's talking about our process and i was like what was our process i don't even remember it <laughs> and then when dina came on because dina was one of the last ones to come on and she's like a friend of her zates at all who'd worked on on the dead sea who knows her and he's like you need to work with Stuart. like drop everything work with Stuart. and she, she's saying this to me on the phone and i was like what did I do with Zates? I can't even remember. So I, I had this moment of panic. I was like, what the F did I do on the Dead Sea? I've got to remember it because I need to do it for Catching Daft. And then it hit me. I was like, you didn't, you just were you. Whatever you've done. Mm-hmm. I was like, so just have faith in whatever you do. And I was lucky enough to create exactly the same atmosphere with Catching Daft that I did with, with the Dead Sea. I think that I definitely, when I was trying to understand it afterwards, I'm definitely someone who likes creating it, create, uh, allowing my actors to be immersed hiding things from them, only allowing them to see the set when it was fully built so they can walk into this thing and, and have a moment alone in the set and nice. like um not allowing, you know, uh Dina and Ryan's character to see the set until they actually turned up in the truck in their first scene. You know, little things like that that really helps them get into the moment and into the scene. I, I want to try and create that the, the, the sort of the, that suspension of disbelief. I want to minimize that. So everything feels as real as possible for them. But I think mainly as well is just to empower your actors to be the best they can be, not be afraid to try things, not be afraid to, to have bad ideas and just know that they've got someone that they can trust to be able to guide the scene where it might be going away. On top of that, obviously, I, I wrote a whole shot list. I'm very like visually focused, aesthetically focused, I should say, and I've done a big shot list. And then me and my DP, Aurelia Mara, who won the ASC award, he's an incredible DP. Um, yeah we went through that shot list and really like drilled down into it and made sure that everything was making sense from a visual language perspective and for the story. I just done as much work, hard work. You can never do enough hard work really, mm-hmm. but I, not for the sakes of doing it, just focusing on what's important and being very rigorous with that. So then when you get on set, you've, you've done your prep. You, th- people have to understand that when you're making your first film, it's not like making a short because you are, people want your attention from the moment your eyes open mm-hmm to the moment you close your eyes and there's barely any rest and you're you're tired and you've got a million people asking you for things if you've already thought about most of those things before you get on set and they're right there in writing you can always defer to it and it's okay to change your mind mm-hmm. but you've always got that backup that's really really fascinating and so insightful and interesting as well uh, and brilliant for our directors out there and screenwriters listening what on set lessons did you learn then from obviously making this film what what was something that worked for you on set i think the biggest lesson that i learned actually was that you have to be adapting to the style of your actors because i've got a i've got a style of how i you know approach a scene and want to work with an with an actor and i realized that actually you have to learn how to adapt to how they want it, right? So as an example, like me and Erin, our style was very similar. We would, before the scene, we would talk about all the intentions of the scene, the beats, where the, the understand the psychological journey of the character, what they're feeling at certain moments. And then we try and understand where the room is to, to go in different directions and where certain beats are really important for the scene to go in a certain direction we would have those conversations she would want to feel comfortable with it i would want to feel comfortable with it and then we do the scene jai is jai was very different he doesn't want to talk about it. he wants to be in the moment and feel it and then he can kind of adjust and you can have those conversations with him during takes so he just he, in, like the impulse and being in the moment was crucial for him and you had to preserve that with him if i would have tried to enforce onto him my style it would have counteracted his ability to perform the way that he did and, you know, Dina was like, Dina was very rigorous with, she needed to believe everything that was happening in the scene, even as small details, like she's like such a perfectionist, um, in even down to like props, she believed and she didn't believe, you know, she's, she's so brilliant in that sense. And once yeah. she gets going, she, she needs basically no direction. It was insane. Like no direction. She, cause she, cause by being that rigorous, it allows her to be completely in the moment and present in a way that is very difficult for actors to do. And therefore she just is flowing. And then, and Ryan is like such an artist and he spoke in a vernacular that was almost like, 
he talked about a scene like a jazz musician would talk about a piece mm. and it made me go okay right i need to sort of understand his language of the scene and try and you know again like develop a, a, a vernacular of my own that matched his to help him talk about it in a way that isn't the way i talk about it and once i understood that we just all had a shorthand and it flowed and i think i learned that pretty quickly i was like okay these guys are they've got their way of doing things and I need to know how to adapt to them to serve them the best that I can. I think that was the biggest lesson I learned actually. Mm. There was, there was lots of other things about, you know, you, you go from a five day shoot on a short film to a 25 day shoot. And you know, there's a lot of people that are wanting your attention all the time. And there's, there are there's questions that have massive implications that you've got to answer when you're half asleep, you're tired, you've got a million other things to, to answer. Mm-hmm. And it's that's that's one of the bigger things. I think on short films, people kind of wing it a bit more, it feels like. But when you get onto that kind of level of film where you've got heads of department that are very experienced and know their stuff, your your demand, the demands on you are as soon as you open your eyes and um, in the morning, as soon as you, even before you close them, you're answering questions. So it's having that, it's, it's having that sort of mental fortitude mm-hmm. to, to stay resilient and also be physically act, physically fit. I think like I'm someone who's always in the gym anyway. So I think that I, I, I cope better than most in those situations. I think the physicality and staying fit um, on set is so important. The amount of people I, I talk to and sort of go, ah, oh, well, I'm eating junk or I'm not sleeping well. I'm not looking after myself on set. But as a director, producer, whatever it is, even lead actor, if you're not looking after yourself during that really tough time, it's like if you're going to, it's, I don't know, I always use wedding as an example, but it's like doing that every day for four or five, whatever, how many weeks you're doing it. You've got to be on top of your game. You can't be going out drinking. You can't be, you know, treating your body um, uh, ill-advisedly. You know, you really have to be on top of it. And I love what you said there. It's so important to do that mentally as well as physically. Did you find that with the actors then dealing with their differences? Because... You know, you read all the books and it's kind of a bit like, yeah, well, this is how to direct actors. And it's like, no, 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 every actor is different and every has their own process. How long did it, how long was that moment for you then to say, ah, they want this? I think pretty quickly, actually. It just became clear that they had their own way of doing things and I had to know how to to serve them better. It wasn't Mm -hmm. an ego thing. It was just their approaches were different. I would have been, I would not have been serving the film or them if I would have gone, no, no, you need to do what I'm saying here. And I think there was lots of things that were unique to the way that I do things that they embraced. Um, but the core of the approach I had to be adaptable to. There were some people on set who were like, why are you giving them so much power? And why are you giving them so much freedom? And like, I'm like, but what do you mean? That's what there was. I think sometimes people thought that I was maybe too empowering of the actors, but actually I don't think that's possible really if you if you've got someone who's invested in the film as you are and in the project well this isn't an ego thing we're talking about here there's you know i think like some people might hear that and be terrified because they're like oh you get some egomaniac turning up on set who's wants this 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 and this and they're trying to make all the decisions and it goes against the, the grain of the film that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about when you've got two people who are on who want the same goal and they're on the same path to do it um working as a as as, a, as collaborators to bring the best out of them and i think that i think actors want to they want to feel safe they want to feel like they're in safe hands and the other thing as well is like a lot of these actors in in sort of the modern era who do so much tv they don't really have like this one source of the truth creatively on set you know they they they've got a question about the character so they go to the showrunner right Showrunner gives them a writer's answer, but they want a direct. They want a, 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 an answer that's that should really come from the director. So they go to the director, mm-hmm. but the director doesn't really know this, this, the character. He's there to call cut and say you hit this beat, hit that beat. So it's so actors aren't really used to having someone in the trenches with them who who knows the story and mm-hmm. is there with them throughout as the director. And I think they just valued knowing that. I, I'd like this. What this is what I'd like to think is that they knew they could when we call action they can they understood the scene and they could do whatever they felt was in the moment for that scene right mm. they were they, they they felt comfortable enough to make mistakes try new ideas even if they, even if they weren't they weren't good ones and also let themselves go in a direction and they knew they had someone watching on the monitor that they could trust to go do you know what this here's some fine tuning that needs to be done here that beat isn't landing 
that line is taken away from that moment there. So they could go, let me just be in the moment and I know that I've got someone I can trust who can just guide it. And I'd like to think that's the atmosphere that I created with them where they felt totally empowered to be the best that they could be. I'd like to think that's what I created for them. Um, but I really, but the one thing I would really emphasize is that I take no credit for what you see on screen with their performances. I think they just came into this with such commitment and such talent that it's completely inappropriate for me to like try and attribute any of that to something I did because like, like I say, man, I felt like I had a real hands-off approach with what they'd done. I just tried to be as supportive as them as possible. Mm -hmm. And being the support is, is one of the big parts of it. You know, it's a big part of being a director. You're directing them into a place and you're absolutely right. When they come off big TV shows, they have a different director each episode. So that director finds it very difficult to get into the arc of their character journey. They know the character way more than the director. So you're right, on a feature film, they're not necessarily used to a director going, no, no, this is the shape. I want the character exactly like this, to putting in the cogs like you're making a bike or a, a car. You know, it's not like fixing the engine. This is this is a very different thing. Um how did we with the crew then in the, that sense? Was it a similar situation? How did you work with your DP to make sure that you got the right feel you wanted? Yeah. So, so I'll start with the DP and then I'll go on to the crew. So, so, um, Aurelien Mara, otherwise known as Kumpa, Kumpa is his nickname. Everyone calls him. Ah. Um, we're both, we, we both share Southern Italian, Italian heritage actually on our, on our, uh, father's side. We, our mums are not from nice. Italy, but so we had a, a connection straight away on that sense. And, um, he's as rigorous as I am with, so he was like, obviously he was kind of surprised. He's like, I've never worked on a film where the director's written up a whole shot list before stepping on set kind of thing. Really? So we spent, yeah, he, he hadn't experienced that. He's like something he wasn't used to. He's worked a lot in the French system. I don't know whether that's, that's normal or not normal. Um, so we went through that. We spent a long time going through every shot and he really challenged me and, you know, why, why is the camera doing this, you know, going from here to here? Why not the other way around? Or why is this? Or why is this angle? And really just going through every shot to make sure that everything made sense visually. Um, mm. and served the story. We both had very, we, we're both very, very aligned on what we think is beautiful imagery in film. Like we really are like, you know, we're romantics of that sort of American 70s and 80s cinema where, mm -hmm. you know, you look at 35 mil where they didn't have a digital grade and, you know, they, they relied on everything and being captured in camera and then the, the small elements that they could do in the lab. Um, mm -hmm. so we, we're, we're big fans of that type of cinema. So that was easy for us. We already had that, that vision of an end goal. It was more about the intricacies of the kind of shots and, and, and it's something we were both very conscious of because this film, I was very aware from, you know, the first word on the script is that if I don't make this thing visually interesting, this film falls apart because you're in one location for the whole film and you have to find a way to cover the action and the tiny details of this world that is constantly challenging the audience to, to reimagine it. So we both understood that me and uh, Kumpa understood that challenge from the beginning that we have to be really, really on top of how this thing operates visually. Mm. But we got on like he's like he's my he's my brother. Honestly, we 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 just got on so well. Great, uh, yeah. You know, we had a lot of battles on set because we're both like maybe strong headed and stuff. But it was all for the best <laughs> of the film. You know, with the crew, it was good. I mean, one thing that I've realized another lesson I learned is that, and I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of this, but people could not understand how I was never showing signs of stress. They were like, <laughs> I was always super calm, and I think that, mm. I think that one thing that is important for for everyone in our industry to remember is that what we do is privilege. You know, I grew up with a single mom that grew up in a council flat, had free school meals, kicked out of school. I know what suffering looks like. I don't know, like from a filmmaking is not suffering. It doesn't qualify as suffering. So every day I was just super thankful. No amount of stress would ever allow me to show that to the crew because you're an antenna. And if you're stressed, yep. everyone becomes stressed. Mm -hmm. So even in our most yep. stressed moments, I tried to keep the mood light. There's a lot of like laughing on our set. I would, I'm never, I'm not a shouter or a screamer or try and make people feel bad. I never do that kind of thing. I always want everyone to be feeling like they're, you're trying to, try, you know, get people to operate at their best and feel part of this thing, invested in it as much as you are. So very early on, I realized people were going, how are you not stressed or how are you thing? And I think that that was one of the things that gave people confidence in me as they saw someone that wasn't, 
an emotional wreck when things were going wrong, but was always able to stay clear headed and find alternatives for us and make decisions in difficult moments. Um, and yeah, we all, we, we just felt like a family on that set. Mm. I, it's so important what you said there to stay calm. There's, you know, back when I was acting, there were so many shouters as directors and you just thought the thing was falling apart. You thought you were in a turkey, you know, whereas actually the directors who stayed calm and just went, it's all right, we'll find another way. Don't worry. We're just making a film. You just went, oh, okay, great. You felt like you, nothing's lost. You thought, okay, that was an issue, but we're all right. We'll get through this together. That's so important. And I love that you did that. I, I try uh, to do the same, you know, stay calm. It's okay. And I like working with people who also stay calm. You know, there's nothing worse when people start going, oh my God, we lost this. What are we going to do? Why have you done this? What? No one's going to work well for you now. No one. Everyone just looks at that and goes, oh, that's embarrassing, isn't it? You know, you shouldn't do it. Uh, I'm reading a, a book about M. Night Shyamalan at the moment, um, which is a fantastic book called The Man Who Heard Voices uh, about uh, this, this writer is following him around the whole time he's making the movie. And he says he only got angry maybe once or twice the whole time. And that time everyone just went, oh, he's just, it's just having a bad day. The rest of the time, everyone was with him constantly, you know, doing what they can to help him make the movie because he cared about everyone around them. You know, him, you know, he had his own demons, but that's different. And what you say there is so important as a director. It really is. And people forget that. They kind of have to be tyrants. I know I've made mistakes. I've got it wrong. Of course, the thing that scares me, though, is I don't know if you, you when you hear those stories about some of the greatest films ever and the, the film sets were just absolute mayhem, horrible. Yeah dark and they've yeah. made this crazy film it always makes me kind of nervous i'm like do you need that mm -hmm. is that a requisite to making a great uh, film i think no i think no i think they're the, just the ones that people talk about i think the amazing films we also love as well also don't necessarily have that drama i just think sometimes you hear of those ones you know like jaws or uh wherever any fincher film uh, you know where people are just screaming and shouting and okay you can get great results you can but also, people don't respect you. I know we're not here to be liked necessarily, but we also, we're, we're human beings and we work with people. And we, we should care. So I love that you did that. I love that you were that person through all the madness because people need it. That makes you a leader. Um, that makes you the captain. That makes you the sergeant, you know, as much as they might. They're doing it in a very controlled way. So um I love that, mate. You're yeah, really good. Are you going to take that? I take it you're going to take that forward. Anything you change um, next time? So lots of lessons, obviously, that I would take forward. That, that side of me, I don't think will ever change. It's just who I am. I'm the, I'm the eldest brother, and mm. like I know how to sort of hold it together for everyone and be that person that's always strong and resilient. That will never change. And I just don't think I don't. I think it's not nice to to make anyone feel unhappy or stressed or anxious on a film in life forget a film set in life so i think i'd like to say that will, will always stay with me i just don't think and also i just honestly like making film is the greatest thing i could ever do if making my art mm. is the thing that it just it really is i can't describe how fulfilling that is for me and and it makes me so happy it's the happiest i ever am so i don't think <laughs> you know the two things can ever really coexist being, you know, being stressed and angry and then being also happy. Of course, there's going to be moments where you get difficulties. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I'd like to think that would always be me. I'd like, I think, I think I do look forward to, um, to other projects and just keeping, you know, keep developing and growing. I think, you know, you're always a worker in progress as an artist and your voice is always developing. I look forward to, to that journey, you know, of, of other projects and how that plays out. Yeah. I can't wait. Um, in terms of the edit. Did you see moments where you wished you'd got certain shots or that you were really glad that you did stick to your guns and get a shot? So, I mean, of course, you, there's so many times <laughs> I'm like, why the hell didn't we get this? Or, But we just didn't have the time is the reality. I think that's the, the thing. Yeah. One thing that I have to credit my DP for a lot is he didn't let me make the mistakes a first-time filmmaker would make because there were times where I would go, I know I just want this scene to be with one shot. I don't need to, we're not mm -hmm. going to cut away from it. And he would say, why don't we just get another, just, just get this shot to give you an option. And I was like, we don't need it though. And he's like, let's just get it. Every single shot that he said, let's just get it, we ended up using. So, so that's another lesson. I'm like, okay, just get a little, cause I've, I sort of despise the idea of shooting coverage. I'm not against people who do that. 
that's specifically for me and and the way that I see my art and the way that I my voice is artistically but um I have learned that an extra shot isn't going to kill you and and there's so many times I was like thank god he pushed me to get that extra shot because it always came in handy mm-hmm. but I get why this film Catching Dust is getting so much love it is wonderful mate it's really great film and uh, you can ignore all what i'm saying right now and take it all with a pinch of salt i don't mind at all because i know it's not that easy but you've made a fantastic feature here uh, and i'm glad it's doing well and i really hope it does well for you uh, because i want to see what you're gonna do next thank you look forward to that that means a lot coming from you honestly legitimately so listen you you can go out there and make your film as stuart has done believe in yourself work hard And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down uh, and help everyone else as well. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your time. Stuart Gatt, thank you so much. This has been an incredible episode and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Big fan of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Giles, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Take care, everyone. Uh, We will see you next Tuesday, as always. For now, though, bye-bye.